Welcome to the podcast from Central Congregational Church. Thank you for joining today. I hope this message from our church this week is grounding and inspiring, challenging and encouraging, and a helpful reminder that you are loved by God and called to great things. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. So that whether it's because of me or even in spite of me, it would still be your word that is faithfully proclaimed and your name that is glorified. Amen. Um, So it has been really fun to settle into the church here. It's been really uh, exciting and honestly a little overwhelming to learn about all of the incredible ministries that have been a part of this church, all of the ways that this church has had an impact on the world and the ways that that's sort of been honored and celebrated, both in spaces of sanctuary and in spaces beyond it. It's been really incredible. One thing that's been really, I think, kind of funny, and I hope you'll laugh with me along with this, but I've been given a tour of our sanctuary multiple times by different interested parties in the church. And what I found is two uh, sort of norms that happen. When we walk in, there are two conversation topics that come up almost immediately. You might guess one. (laughs) Perhaps. The other is a celebration of the Gilded Age of architecture here in Rhode Island. So we walk in, and often the first thing someone says is, you know, one of the first things people notice about our church is those symbols up at the top. Um, If you're unfamiliar, they bear a striking resemblance to a symbol that has come to symbolize hatred, uh, specifically hatred and the desire to wipe out all of the Jewish population. That's not what that is. But it looks like it. So from what I understand, it's been a large topic of conversation throughout this church's history, beginning in the 1930s when it became a problematic symbol. So it's often one of the first things people tell me when we walk into the sanctuary. And what's interesting, actually, just like sort of looking at faces, this is already making some of us uncomfortable, which that's okay. It's a part of our church's history, and that symbol was there long before the Nazi party existed and will exist long after with God's help, the Nazi party continues, uh, ceases to exist. It's a symbol that was put into the church. Actually, it was the first symbol, that and the Cairo next to it. These stained glass pieces were the only original stained glass to this building in the 1890s. It was one of the first parts of architecture and symbology and the things that the original people who built this this sanctuary with the anticipation of all the good things that God would do, they wanted a symbol of a broken cross to stand at its center. A reminder that God's, that Jesus' sacrifice was the last sacrifice that God would call on. And so the idea of a broken cross standing at the pinnacle of our domed cathedral was that reminder for a community of people. And yet now it's the thing that people introduce to me as, with a, a sort of statement of apologetics. The other is a celebration of this beautiful Gustavino tile. 
And the way that the stained glass was added in in different periods of time, one of my uh, favorite things, and it was not donated in this way, but this stained glass was donated by our neighbor who uh, once owned the house next door. And I could only imagine his desire to not have 200 people looking into his bedroom <laughs> on Sunday morning. And so perhaps a beautiful image of the coming kingdom of God would better serve uh, <clears throat> his family privacy. But even the domes and this sort of misty image of what the kingdom of God might be are a reflection of the best of architecture in the late, or late 19th and early 20th century. The domes themselves were the pinnacle of architecture at the time that this building was built. And so uh, around the time that the World Fair in Chicago was happening and architects were imagining what might the, the future of humanity look like, they imagined a pinnacle of human history surrounded by beautiful, mysteriously held domes. And so our stained glass represents that, the pinnacle of what human existence might be the kingdom of God. It's amazing. When you walk into this space, there's so much to point at. One thing that I heard yesterday is that for a long time, the cross up on our communion table, along with uh, the candlesticks and everything there, uh, was never a part of the original plan for this space. Um, because the, the explanation, I think, is really funny. Because at the time, we were a sort of Puritan so we were very comfortable with the gilding, <laughs> but uncomfortable with the golden cross. <laughs> Which I think is just so interesting, right? The kind of decisions that we make about the way that space is used. Um, to continue making your heads pivot around your body, the stained glass that I'm looking at just there in the corner. I don't know if you all know that history, and I would, I would um, encourage you to go to look at it, but it's a simple piece of stained glass made up of broken fragments of glass from various cathedrals in London after the bombing in World War II as a celebration of this congregation's ongoing efforts for peace. It's a beautiful reminder of what peace in the midst of chaos might be. Isn't that amazing? So even then, we have this tension between a stained glass built from the remnants of a party aimed on destruction. But our first commentary is on apologetics for a symbol that reflects it. There's, I think, a really interesting tension for us to sort of navigate there. But I think what most, maybe most interesting to me is on these tours, it's always about those particularities about the timing of when the organ screen was changed out and how that uh, imagery reflects a different period of architecture from the 1960s and how the maintenance of the Guastavino tile has shifted around. Uh, there used to be four of these uh, central crosses in each of the transepts that now there's just the one. And that was done at a time to sort of conserve a part of history while also simplifying a part of our architecture here. And all of these things are really interesting, but what I've noticed is when we give tours of our sanctuary and of our space, it's rarely about the devotion of the people who gather in it. It's a beautiful history. 
It's beautiful architecture. I've heard now multiple times about the ways that those darned RISD students changed some of the star configuration in the painting up here, and the patterning on the painting above the arch. But sometimes I, I struggle to hear the stories about the way that God breathed life into our community. And the reason this has been on my mind, especially today, has, is because of the way that Scripture unfolds for us. You see, it's a, it's a really interesting passage. We have been in the first chapter of Mark now for several weeks. If you've been in worship every week, you'll maybe anxiously anticipating next week when we finally get out of the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, but we are still in it. It's amazing. The first chapter contains so, so, so much. We see Jesus's beginning. We see his baptism. We see his experience in the wilderness and temptation. We see uh, his, uh, the, the way that his friend, John the Baptist, was arrested. We see the way that he begins his ministry by casting out demons. We see the way that he heals Simon Peter's mother. We see the way that the people respond to him. And so he finds himself in the beginning of this passage surrounded by people who need from him. People looking for healing, people looking for a fresh lease on life, people hoping to be inspired by his incredible teaching, and they surround him with expectation. And so he responds to all of their needs, even allowing Simon Peter's mother, who, by the way, is the very first woman named in the Gospel of Mark. Pause parenthetical statement that I think is cool. Uh, I love the Bible, and I particularly love Mark's gospel because it's so challenging but so important. It, so Simon Peter's mother <clears throat> is sick. Jesus heals her, and it says she begins to serve them. That might sound like woman's work. Right, that's, I've heard that sermon lots of times, you know. The men needed to do their discipling stuff, and so Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother, and Thank God she can start cooking. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm saying I've heard people say that. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not what's happening here. It's one of three times in the Gospel of Mark that the word, that, that word servant comes up. It's the same word that we use for deacons. You know, those people who are elevated to a particular kind of leadership in the church that is dependent on a strong spiritual foundation, dependent on the well-being of others, dependent on putting the perspective of God above and beyond everything else. So uh, if you're a deacon, that's a very high bar. But what Scripture describes is Simon Peter's mother becoming a deacon, a servant to the world. The other two times that this word is used in the Gospel of Mark is when uh, Jesus is described. Jesus comes to be a servant, a deacon. The pinnacle of a faithful life is that of one who takes on the servanthood to their surroundings. And so Simon Peter's mother actually becomes the first true disciple. Because the third time that we hear about this word uh, deacon, it's describing the women who followed Jesus every step 
serving in every way. Are you familiar with the way that the disciples, the guys, are described in the Gospel of Mark? They're real dumb. (laughs) And they're real self-involved. And they're really focused on how much power they might be able to hold by sitting close to Jesus. That is the topic of their conversation. So when a deacon is described, a servant is described, it is exclusively used for Jesus and for the women. This is not about cooking a great meal for the disciples in a home. This is about Simon Peter's mother, a woman in the first century, becoming the beacon, the reference for all of us who hope to live as disciples and deacons following in Jesus' footsteps. Only Jesus and only the women are described with this word. End parentheses. So, after Jesus heals Simon Peter's mother, and she begins her ministry with them, uh, the community descends on him and he starts to heal, which is wonderful. That's exactly what he's been set out to do. Uh, So he heals, he casts out demons, he uh, teaches, he does all of these things, and finally it comes to the late evening and the crowd disperses. And Jesus rises before dawn to go out to a quiet place, to pray, to meditate, to center himself, to remind himself what his true calling was, all of the things that each of us could probably take some more time to do. Jesus goes to this place, and Scripture tells us that Simon Peter tracks him down. Another translation says, Simon Peter hunted Jesus down to say, The crowd has regathered. You need to go back. That sounds like affirmation to me. If I had crowds of people following after me, I would feel pretty darn good about myself. And my impulse would be to turn right back around in order to center myself in the middle of a community of people who had devoted themselves to my capacity to heal, to teach, to grow, to be. And I think that happens in our church all the time. In fact, confessionally, I, in settling here, my prayer life actually has fluctuated some because I've been so preoccupied with trying to learn about our financial systems, learn about the needs of our children's ministry, learn about the needs of our ongoing programs, learning about how our small groups are set up and organized, learning about the ways that the gallery is structured, trying to get myself into some sort of headspace to have some talking points with David French because he would uh, need to be entertained by my knowledge, right? That's just crazy, right? But like, uh, it's... It's a thing that happens, and so my mind becomes preoccupied with a whole bunch of things that feel really important. Preoccupied with a bunch of things that feel really affirming. 
gathered in the work, learning about Guastavina、uh, tiling and where it exists in other places around the country, and how that marks a particular moment in architectural history that was foundational for American architecture. Really interesting and good stuff. But does it help me to attune to the presence of God? Maybe. I think often in my life, what I find is sometimes it's the best things, it's the good things, it's the places where I'm being affirmed most, it's the places where I'm most engaged that are often the things that distract me from the presence of God. So you may have grown to be very successful in whatever field that you're in, and perhaps the preoccupation is about office politics. Perhaps the preoccupation is trying to manage a system. So you're up until two, three o'clock in the morning, focused into a spreadsheet or to a dynamic in an office, or trying to figure out how you're going to handle a particular employment situation. Which are good things that need to be handled, and they're things that you are equipped for, things that you are an expert in, and so they need your full attention. And sometimes we need to know how to step away for just a moment, to center down into a quiet, distant place, like Jesus. Stepping out into the wilderness to center down into some greater depth than just my expertise, just my knowledge, just the things that I'm good at, to put my trust again in a bigger vision, God's vision. Because what Jesus does, you know, he says Peter comes to Jesus and tells him. Everybody is looking for you. Everybody is looking for you. Not angry, not frustrated, not confused, but because Jesus was offering something beautiful. Everybody was looking for him because he was bringing new life. Which is why Jesus' response, I think, can be so instructive for us. Jesus replied, "Well, let us head in the other direction. Let us head in the other direction to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there too. That is why I've come." And he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. And throwing out demons. A friend of mine,、uh, who was a new church planter, so like when a new church is getting started, he used to do his leadership retreats very simply by describing himself as though,、uh, you know, all of us we're getting on a plane and we're going to L.A. Can we all agree we're going to L.A. together? It'll be a lot of fun. There's lots of work to do in LA. 
But in order to get there, you know, the flight out of Providence is not, not cost effective. So we need to get to LA. We need to do it with the resources we have. So we've got to get the train up to Boston so that we can fly out to LA easily. So we all agree, let's get on the train together, we're going to Boston. When we get there, we have to get right, on, right into the airport to fly out. But some folks among us may decide, you know what, I haven't seen Quincy Market in a while. I think I need to walk around. That's great. We're going to LA. There's work to be done. When we get on the plane, there happens to be a layover. For some reason, and it always seems to work out this way, that layover is in, like, Virginia. I don't know why we have to go south to go across, but it always seems to work out that way. So you get down to Virginia, and someone's like, man, you know what? I kind of want to go hiking. Maybe we could go up to the Shenandoah Valley real quick and just spend some time in the woods. Great. That's not our vision. Do you see what I mean? If we are people oriented towards the vision of God, it is essential for us to take intentional time to anticipate what God is calling us to so that we don't accidentally follow every whim, every distraction, every hope, every desire that we have within us. Because what often happens, at least for me, is if I do not keep God at the center of my life, I find myself distracted by every impulse that I have within me, every one of them. And I follow that to its end. And so we as people of faith have this really important challenge to navigate. How do we honor who we are and who we've been called to be with the gifts and the passions and the capacities that we have? Because those are gifts from God. How do we honor those things without letting those things become our distraction away from God? How do we affirm our incredible uh, leadership or financial or uh, like if you're a writer, how do we affirm those gifts that have been given to us by God without letting those things pull us away from God? Beginning to see them as our own uh, sort of internal divine gift that it's just something that's mine and not something that's been given to me. How do we dist- keep ourselves from being distracted by our own omniscience, our own self-importance, because of the gifts that God's given to us? Do, do you see the challenge here? It's immense, but it's essential for us to navigate these things together, which is why we worship as a community here. And for as beautiful and sacred as this space is, we need to allow it remind us of the kingdom that we're walking towards and not be distracted by the moment of time in architectural history. Do you, do you see? This space is sacred. And it is sacred in part because of the way that it's been crafted. But it's far more sacred because of the people who gather here with the intention to focus on God's divinity, on God's presence in our lives. It shouldn't be the distraction. It should be the arrow pointing towards the presence of God and not away from it. It's a challenge that we will consistently need to settle into, wrestle with, navigate. 
Because what Jesus teaches us is sometimes our greatest affirmations, our greatest gifts, can often be the things that distract us away from God. So I love the symbology of this church because of how much tension is held here. I love that there's a, uh, there's a memorial to peace in a time of war that echoes some of the tension some of us in the room feel with the symbology that is more ancient than that war. I love the way that these domed buildings that echo into the distance are a reminder of a particular moment in people's faith. I wonder what those domes would look like now if we put a new spin on it. I wonder what God is calling us to through those symbols. So these things can be a distraction or they can be the gift. And my prayer is that all of us would settle into it as a gift from God and not a distraction from it. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this message, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing it with your friends. If you do share it, be sure to tag us so that we can join in the conversation. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at centralchurch.us. We hope you have a great week, and we hope to see you back again next week.